Today's passage is a continuation of our study in Judges. It is uh, on pages 213 and 214 in your pew Bibles. uh, Are there slides for it? No, okay, there are no slides. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read Judges 13, uh, verses 1 through 5, and then 24 and 25, and then Kyle is going to reference uh, several verses in chapter 14 in his sermon as well. So keep your Bibles open. Judges 13, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And then down to verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Menena, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtahol. This is the reading of God's word. You know, uh, Jeeps are supposed to have detachable front windshields, so... Beth did a great job building that. (laughs) Accurate. Uh, Well, I'm glad to be with you all this morning. I really appreciate the opportunity and the trust that you guys have to allow me um, to be here this morning. Um, And so to start, I have a question for you. I wonder if any of you have noticed how in the last decade, uh, superhero films have kind of taken over that industry. Uh, You know, growing up, I was actually a fan of the comic books. I collected the books. I watched the cartoons. I had the action figures. I did all the things, whether it was the Batman movie with Michael Keaton or the Spider-Man movies with uh, Tobey Maguire. Uh, They were a bit cheesy, but I loved them all the same. And then in 2008, Marvel Studios came out with their first movie, Iron Man, and that changed public perception. So that movie was a little different than those who had come before, and it was this huge success. And all of a sudden, these heroes and these books weren't just for children anymore, uh, but they were enjoyed by people of all ages. And now, over 10 years later, they're this massive genre with what feels like a movie coming out every few months and a TV show coming out every few months, and there's merchandise, and it's all over. And so whether you're a fan of that stuff or not, Uh, what it's proven is that people love their heroes. And and it also raises the question, what makes someone a hero? And and it begs the question, too, what does it look like to be a hero? Or what do you look for your heroes to be? Where or who would you trust your life? And, you know, as more and more of these movies come out, we find that there's an almost endless variety of these heroes. But one thing they all have in common is the significance of their origin stories. 
So each hero's origins are significant because they tell us something about the person behind the mask or in the costume. So for some, their origins are also the origin of their protagonist, or for others, it also sets up their greatest challenge, or maybe it reveals what their weakness will be. For others still, it tells you what their strengths are, and it tells you about how their story will go. But regardless, origin stories are important. And this morning, I want to look at a character who often puts in, who's often put into the similar category and called a hero, someone endowed with superhuman strength, who accomplishes legendary feats, who's uniquely set apart by God. This morning, I want to look at the character of Samson, and specifically, I want to look at his origins, the beginnings of his story. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 13 through 14, and together, I hope that we can find what kind of hero he will be, and if he's the kind of hero we should be hoping for. And so with that, uh, we're going to dive back in. I'm just going to read chapter one, uh, sorry, chapter 13, verse 1 again. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. All right, so if we stop here for a moment, this is our setting, and this is our backdrop for our hero. hero. Israel again did what was evil in the sight of of the Lord, so he gives them into the hands of their enemies for 40 years. You know, so far in the book of Judges, there's been this pattern that's kind of formed and fleshed out of God's people rejecting him and his ways to turn to the ways of the world around them. And those choices always lead them into idolatry and immorality and rebellion, and always God allows the consequences of their choices to come in full. And so the pattern goes, the people rebel, are given over into their enemies, they cry for rescue, God raises up a redeemer, a judge, God empowers them to victory, and an age of peace follows. But with each of these cycles, that time of rest, peace, and prosperity concludes because of the people's propensity to go back to what was right in their own eyes, but what was inevitably evil in the sight of God. And so this is the pattern that's there. And as I saw that pattern and I thought about it this week, I just had to ask myself, man, why is our definition of good and evil always so different than God's? Why can't we seem to get this right? Yet this is where Samson's story begins, again with the same pattern here, the people in the hands of their enemies because they chose them over God again. And I think here we have to pause and ask ourselves a question as we look at our own stories as individuals, but also as God's people, and ask whose eyes do we use to judge our lives? In other words, whose judgment do we lean on for what's good and what's right? Whose voice do we listen to when determining how we live and speak? For Israel, during the time of the judges, they saw that the lives of the Canaanite people And they determined that their way was better than God's. And regularly in the book, we will hear that they judged based upon what seemed good to themselves instead of what seemed good to God. And the consequences of this affected generations, sometimes even 40 years. 
And so today, what's your metric for what's right and wrong? Is it God's word? Is it his wisdom and spirit living and moving and speaking to you? Or is it someone like me who stands on a stage or a political party and whoever currently represents that platform? Is it some tradition, be it family or community, who or what defines good and evil for you? For Israel, during the time of Judges, they chose their own eyes and their own experiences to be their judge, despite God's work and words to his people. And often I fear that as the church, we fall prey to the same temptations. It's a challenge each time I'm up here to speak. It's scary for me to think that I could somehow misinterpret a passage or mislead a congregation if what I present comes from my mind instead of God's spirit. And so I take this responsibility really seriously. Thank you again for allowing me to share this with you. But listen, if I'm being honest in my day-to-day, I'm not so sure I'm as careful. And it's easy for me to judge based upon my own experiences, and it's easy for me to react based upon how I feel. And I'm sure some of you can relate. But every time I, I do this, every time I live by what I see to be right, I constantly find myself getting in trouble, and I often end up, like Israel, crying out to God for his help or for, his, for wisdom to get me out of the trouble that I put myself in. But I'm thankful that we have a God who's faithful to his promises and his people and who answers our prayers. But even scarier to me than the times when I do what's right in my own eyes is the times that I do so none the wiser. And in fact, according to our text, some of us can do that for 40 years. And so I asked myself, and I'll ask you this morning, could that be you today? Whose eyes are we using to judge our lives? Who or what defines good and evil for you? Listen, your answer can affect not just your own life, but even a generation. 40 years. But the good news is we have a God who's faithful to his promises and his people. And he's a rescuer for his people. And he uses imperfect people for salvation. So this morning, as we read, let's see the origin of one of these saviors who God will use to rescue his people. Picking up again in verse 2, it says, There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born a child, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines." And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanea Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. So like many important figures in Scripture, Samson's story begins at his birth. But actually even more significant than the reality of where his story begins is how his birth takes place. And and so this is often a sign that a character will be significant when their stories begin at birth. But within the Bible, there are only a handful of very important figures whose births follow a specific pattern. So this pattern begins with a promised birth of a son to a barren or virgin woman. 
by a messenger of God dedicated to the Lord, blessed by God for God's purposes. And when we as careful readers pick up on this pattern, it not only gives this character's story a context within the confines of their own narrative, but it also connects them to a greater context from which to view the story. And so for Samson, the details of his birth places him in this unique category alongside characters like Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samuel, John the Baptist, and Jesus himself. And and here's why I think this matters. is because not only is Samson in this specific group of people with this specific kind of birth, but he stands directly in the center of them all with three who came before and three who will come after. And so the Bible uses these character types and these specific numbers to teach us things outside the regular scope of the story, and these details exist to point us back to what's come before and forward to what comes ahead. And as we look at the story to follow, as careful readers, we get to pivot back to see how he compares to the representatives and the saviors that God's used for his people before but we also get to look forward to see if his is the future that we should hope for, or if we'd still be longing for someone else. Is Samson the hero, or is Samson the kind of hero that we should long for and hope for? You know, another important aspect of these birth narratives is their reminder of the promised son from all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3.15, God prophesies of a son born of a woman who will free us from the curse of sin by defeating the evil serpent of old. And so with that in mind then, every time a child is born of a woman in Scripture, this question is raised, will this be the one? Capital T, the promised son. And Samson... The, the one who will begin to, to look at, who will begin to free his people from their enemies is no different. This is the question to be asked here. Is he the Savior? And his name suggests what his mother may have believed. Samson's name means like the sun. So Samson's mother believed that he would be a light to the world. So I don't know if she believed that he was the son of promise, but either way, like all of these characters in this category, his life begins with this immense amount of hope and an expectation for salvation. And I think this is another place where we can stop and consider our own lives, and here we can ask ourselves the question, where do we put our faith? Do you trust in the promises of God, or do you seek their fulfillment elsewhere? You know, if you read the rest of this chapter, you actually get to see a contrast between Samson's mother and his father. Because we see her, she hears this message of good news, and she chooses immediately to share it with others. And she recognizes that this is a message from God, and so she's eager to obey. But her husband, he seeks to see it for himself, and he begins to ask for more. And when he finally believes that this message is true, he doesn't seek to honor God but he desires explicitly to honor the messenger. And you can see that in verse 17. And and so, again, this, this begs the question, where is your faith this morning? Are you like Samson's mother or father? Is your faith in some message? Or is your faith even in the messenger? Is your faith in the promise? Or is it in the promise keeper? So like the question we asked first, it's easy to put our trust in the wrong places. 
and like walking on thin ice, trust in wrong places, no matter how strong a faith, will fail. So where is your trust this morning? Is it in the law of God or in the messengers of God or rightly in Him alone? Our faith needs to be in God alone who's the author of the word and who sends the messenger and the one who makes and keeps promises to us. And it's easy to get this wrong. And in my time as a pastor, I've met so many people who have been so close, but they misplaced their faith and every time it let them down, these false expectations, and they've been broken by the consequences. Don't let that be you. So ask yourself seriously this week, where have you put your hope? If it's in anything other than God alone, eventually it will fail you and you will fall and it will hurt. And so in our text today, God makes a promise of a miraculous son who God would use to begin to free his people from their captors. And so some put their faith in that son Some put their faith in that messenger, but regardless, God is the reason that fulfillment of this promise will come. Is your faith in the promise, the messenger, or the author of both? Our faith belongs in God alone. And so that's chapter 13, the prophecy and the birth of this promised Savior. And from here, we get to move into chapter 14 to see what kind of Savior Samson might be. And so we we begin in chapter 14. Uh, I'll read verses 1 through 4. He says, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all your people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to the father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. All right, so church, we are not off to a good start. Chapter 13 concluded with God blessing Samson as he grew and the Spirit of God moving in him. But the very first thing we read Samson do is see a daughter of his enemy and determine her to be right in his own eyes. This woman of Timnah is like the fruit of Eden, explicitly forbidden in complete opposition to what God desires and declares good for his people to have. Yet Samson determines that she's right in his eyes and therefore he should take her. And can we guess how this will go? Listen to what God says regarding the Philistines, the Canaanite people, back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 through 4. It says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So listen, this is the same warning from the garden. Stay away. Don't take not good, bad consequences. And here is another theme that the Bible loves to use. See, every time we read in Scripture a character making a choice based upon what they see instead of what God has said, we know that it will not end well. It always goes poorly. 
So Samson knows God's purposes for him and the vows that he has to carry as a Nazarite, someone uniquely dedicated to a specific purpose for God. But he consistently and completely disregards the parameters of his vow. And here, instead of staying away from God's enemies, he marries into them, which is, in my opinion, the exact opposite of freeing yourself from them, to marry in. And so from here, we get to see what he chooses to do next in verse 5 through 9. It says, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to a vineyard of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came towards him roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and though, although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. All right, pop quiz. What grows in a vineyard? Grapes. So if you're spending all day in a vineyard with your family, what are you likely to eat? Or maybe drink. Grapes. All right. So, two things our hero's not supposed to do. And at the same time, a lion attacks Samson. And the Spirit of God rushes upon him and he's able to tear this lion to pieces with his bare hands. Now, I tried to find out the tensile strength of lion hide this week. Interestingly, there's not a lot of literature on the subject. But, I have torn apart a piece of jerky... And even that sometimes takes some work. So I can only imagine how strong Samson was. But as easy as it is to get distracted by God giving someone superhuman strength, the significant detail, and what I think we should focus on, is the fact that immediately after Samson breaks his vow to God, God radically holds up his end of the bargain. And here's what I mean. Despite Samson's disobedience, God remained faithful. And even though it's clear that the character in the story doesn't realize God's presence, he works and moves all the same. And I think we should take comfort in that. That God remains faithful even in the times when we are not. If you look back with me at a small detail in verse 4, it says, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. In verse 4, we find that although it was explicitly against God's command to give or take a spouse from the Canaanites, God would use this as an opportunity against his enemies, even if those involved had no idea that God was working. And here in verse 6, even though Samson is somewhere he doesn't belong, breaking his vow, God is unwilling to forfeit the promise that he made to use this man. And so he works behind the scenes. And so for us this morning, God is at work, even when we don't see it. Even in our disobedience, even in our disregard, God always makes good on his promises. He remains faithful, even when we are not. And this is why I think he's worthy of our worship and our affection, because he loves us even when we are unlovable. He's committed to us even when we fall short. When God makes promises, he keeps them, and his promise to promises to us are always good. And so again, where are you putting your faith and trust this morning? If it's in anything but God, it's going to fail. And if you're scared or skeptical of putting your faith in God today, know this. He will always hold up his end of the bargain. He will remain faithful even when you are not. Always. 
You know, as we continue through the chapter, we see again and again our hopes of Samson being a hero falling short. In verse 8 through 9, we see him break his vow again by returning to the scene of this battle with this lion. And he finds bees had made a nest and made honey in the body of this dead lion. And instead of finding that dirty or disgusting, Samson scrapes it out with his hands, eating it as he travels. And when he comes home to his mother and father, like Eve with the fruit from the forbidden tree, he gives it to them, this unclean food, so they eat and become unclean as well. So this is the hero in our story. He doesn't even think to protect his own family, but instead gives them that which defiles them. What kind of savior is this? In verse 10 through 19, we begin to see the consequences of Samson's disregard for what God had said and how poorly his eyes serve him as the judge of what's good. As Samson celebrates at his wedding feast with his new Philistine family, he asks them what I think was a terrible riddle. You can read that. Uh, and he makes a bet that they, can, they can't solve this riddle within the week. And so then in the story, we see the wickedness of this new family it's revealed when they threaten Samson's wife, their family, their flesh and blood, if she can't find out the answer to this riddle for them. And so in her fear, she betrays her new husband. And so then in Samson's rage, he kills 30 men in a Philistine town and steals their spoils to pay off the debt that his bet cost him. And in his anger, he leaves his new wife behind and he goes back home to his father's house. And then finally, in verse 20, this chapter ends with the clear moral confusion of all of this devolving even further as his wife is given to someone else who also happens to be Samson's best man. And so this is Samson's origin story. From his birth, Samson set up to be this epic hero for his people. God commits himself to Samson before he was even conceived and promises to be with him, and blesses him, and moves in him, and even gives him supernatural strength to be the savior for his people. But instead of trusting in God and following after what God said was good, Samson puts his faith in himself, and sought after what looked good to him, yet it never worked out well. Despite God's clear purposes for his life, Samson thought he knew better and determined to follow his own selfish path. And that path led him to places he should have never been and to a family he should have never tied himself to. And ultimately, his path led to him suffering instead of success. Samson's eyes failed him time and time again. His faith in his definition of good and evil only took him to places of pain, and his response was to inflict that pain on others. Yet despite Samson's failures and flaws, God remained faithful to him. Why? Because God's faithfulness was not dependent on Samson's character, but on his own. And so what we find is Samson is neither a hero or a savior, but God is. And within the book of Judges, Samson serves as this culmination of generations of people turning from what God said was good to what they thought was better. And it never goes well. And in Samson, we find um, that he's not the hero these people needed, but he is the hero these people deserved. And Samson's origin places him in this category with heroes of the faith, but it uniquely has him stand out as the example of what happens 
when our saviors turn out to be selfish. And so today, who do you turn to and trust when things get tough? What do your heroes look like? Who are your saviors? Where is your faith? Whose eyes do you use to judge what's good and what's evil? And where is your faith this morning? In a promise, a specific messenger, a poor excuse for a savior, yourself? Or is it in the God who remains faithful and always makes good on his promises, even when we do not, even when we fail to see he's working? Samson's origin shows us that our eyes and what we see as good can often lead to unforeseen suffering and reminds us that often hurting people hurt people. His story shows us that we need a better Savior than Samson could ever be. And for us today, we have the gift to know his name is Jesus. And so on our list of these seven prophesied and promised sons, Jesus is last because none are needed after. Despite the similarities in origin, Jesus chooses to follow the path that God the Father had set before him and selflessly lays down his life to save the lives even of his enemies. Jesus was a selfless savior where Samson was not, and because of that, he offers freedom not just from a wicked people, but for all people and from our greatest enemy, sin, if we would put our faith in him. So this morning, again, who defines what is good for you? Who or what have you placed your faith in as Savior? Faith in the wrong places will always fail, but God remains faithful even when we do not. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for stories like Samson's that we can see time and time again. So much promise, yet he stumbles and falls. Lord, how often are we the same when we trust our eyes instead of yours? We trust our judgment instead of yours. Lord, forgive us of that. Free us from that. Lord, thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, is the savior that we've longed for. He is the promised and prophesied son. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to know him. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to be part of his family so much greater than that of our enemies. Thank you for the freedom that you give. In your name we pray. Amen.